Welcome to What's So Funny, a comedy podcast where we talk about some of the most influential and controversial comedians from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Sit back, relax, and get ready to laugh. Here's your host, Dave Swanson. Hi, welcome to What's So Funny. I'm your host, Dave Schwenson, and today I'm joined by two good friends, my co-hosts, Kelly Thulis. Oh, hello. Hi, Kelly. Welcome back. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. All right. Well, guess what? We've got uh, Logan Rashaw with us today, so the Yay. three of us are like back together. Hey, Dave. Hey, Kelly. Good to be hey. back. All right. So what have you guys been up to? What's going on? Kelly, tell us what you've been doing. I haven't talked to you in a while. I know. Well, you know what? I was actually on vacation, so I just got back from that, and um, it was a good family vacation. Not very relaxing, but lots of lots of material to be found. Yeah, I was going to say, in the old days, you'd invite us over for a slideshow, but now we can just check out Facebook or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Right? Facebook is my slideshow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there will be a link in the comments of this podcast if you guys <laughs> want to see my vacation photos. <laughs> very good. Well, Logan asked, where'd you go, right? We want to be your nosy. Where were you? Oh, yeah. Well, we went to the exotic land of Marblehead, Ohio. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, yeah. Swanky. The, the Great Lakes, as they call it, the Great Lake Erie. The beautiful um, Lake Erie, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's actually a lot of fun. My, my family, uh, my grandparents used to have a home up there, so we spent a lot of times there as a kid, and so now it was fun bringing my, my own uh, child up there to to experience it and she's never seen the big you know a beach or a lake before so it was a lot of fun like that well I just think you could have taken logan and me with you that way you could have said you had three children with you <laughs> well you guys are always in my heart so <laughs> <laughs> okay enough of that I'd rather be on the beach <laughs> i'm tired of this nonsense logan what's happening with you man i'm actually just uh prepping up for a vacation this week i'm going to hawking hills in ohio so i'm going to do some hiking hang out in a cabin and avoid people for as long as possible Wow. Nice. Yeah. So I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Do you want to what come to Hawking Hills? I you actually, like to hike? Actually, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you begrudgingly hike often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to be close to the water, to be honest with you. <laughs> All right. Well, it's fun talking to you guys, but I even know what's more fun than that is talking about our, our special comedian today, Gene Carroll. Yes. Yeah, let's talk about Gene. This is kind of an interesting one because yes. not a lot of people know about Gene Carroll. Which no. is really a shame. It's such a shame. I'm so excited that we're doing this to bring her her some some light. You know, she she should be known by more people. Yeah, she is kind of like uh, someone. I don't want to say she's been forgotten because she's influenced so many comedians. But you know, she retired from comedy a long time ago, and her name is not really. You know, I, it used to be like a household name, Jean Carroll. Right. Back in the th what the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and even into the 60s. And then she dropped out. She stopped. She retired. And so a lot of uh, their newer comedy fans don't really know much about Jean Carroll. So we're going to fill them in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's she has come back into you know some people's um, you know field of vision here just because of the show um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. A lot of the writers have given credit to her backstory, Jean Carroll's story, as, as some inspiration for the show. So there's been a little bit more exposure to Jean Carroll in recent years, but really still, unless you're digging up those facts, you yeah. don't really know that. Yeah. And there's been some tributes to her. I mean, some of the comedians she influenced, especially like Lily Tomlin, mm -hmm. Joy Behar, um, and then... Of Phyllis course, Diller. The, even. Yeah, the late Phyllis Diller and... and uh, 
you know, they, that was their, their influence. Yeah. And there's just not that much there because she retired so early. Like you said, it's kind of before a lot of these things were being recorded. There's clips of her on Ed Sullivan, but she's only got one album and it's a great album. Yeah, Logan, didn't you dig that album up for us? Yeah, so it was tough for us to find uh, on short notice because there's not like a digital presence. You can still definitely buy the album. I ordered a copy. It was $10 with shipping included, so people can find it at least. But it's called A Girl in a Hot Steam Bath. came out in 1960. And for us, I had to just start digging online, and I found an Indian music streaming service that had it. You couldn't get it on Spotify or Pandora. It was like Ghana, an Indian like country specific music streaming service. So I had to finagle a bunch of things, make it look like my computer was located in India so I could even stream it. (laughs) And then I I was able to get us all copies so we can listen to it on short notice. But uh, you can definitely find an LP of it if you still uh, listen to that kind of stuff like I do. That was going to be my question. I was like, when you say you could buy the album, you mean like the album album, the record album, correct? I don't even think there were like CDs of it, but you can buy the record and I mean, it's cheap. It's 10 bucks. You can have it shipped to you, but... It's worth it, for sure. Yeah, well, I was surprised when I got that email from you that uh, you had the link, and I tuned in and listened. I went, wow, I mean, this is, I mean, I thought this would be out of print. I, yeah. I didn't know you could get this anywhere. I was trying to figure out how to plug my record player back in. I was like, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I'm running around, you're looking for a stereo needle. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> but it's a good album. Like, I think it holds up today. It's it got, does. I mean, yes. we talked about Mort Saul having the first stand-up album, but she was one of the first people doing stand-up. Even though the album came out a year after his, she's been kind of doing it for a lot longer than he was, I think. Well, let's look back at the Gene Carroll, because I think this is a very interesting story. And again, like a lot of comedy fans, I'd heard of her. I've seen clips of her over the years. You know, I'm not that unfamiliar with her, but I really didn't know her history, you know, where she came from or how much of an influence she really is, still mm-hmm. is. Uh, especially, you know, I get to say female comedians, male comedians, female comedians, everybody's a comedian. But, you know, you, you look back at, um, well, again, like when she started, there were no female comedians, stand-up comedians at that time. Um, Moms Mabley, I'll go with her. You know, I always think she was the earliest, but, you know, she was... She was in kind a of whole, in a separate circuit, though. Yes, yeah, she was in the chillin' circuit. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was like... Uh, you know, it's it's awful to say, but back in those days, it was divided black clubs and white clubs. Mm-hmm. And Moms Mabley and all these great comedians that were, you know, African-American, they were the black clubs and the white audience did, did not know them. Um, so, yeah, so then you had Jean Carroll coming out as, you know, the first really female stand-up comedian. Um, I, I can't emphasize how important that is because really back in the 19th, you're talking about 1920s, she was in vaudeville with a song and dance team. Yeah. Um, that's how she made her you know, started performing professionally as, as a, as an entertainer was song yeah, I mean, and as dance. a child too. She was very young when she started doing it and she was very successful by yes. age 12. She was supporting her entire family. Yeah. She won mm-hmm. a talent contest when she was 11 years old, singing and dancing. And an agent saw her and put her in vaudeville, mm-hmm. put her in with a two, a two guys and another girl. There were four, four kids and they would sing and dance and they made tons of money. She supported her family you know, and there were a couple of brothers and sisters in her family. She was the main support. Yeah. And and it's kind of interesting to her, her culture of the time. She's quoted as saying, like, whoever was making the money was the one to have the say in what was happening. So by age 12, she was the, making the money. She was supporting the family. And she said she didn't have a childhood anymore. She was the she one was calling brought the in. Shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. She was the one brought in. If there was an argument, they'd all look to her because she's the one with the money, which is just crazy. And I think well, that she- really... You kind of see why 
you know, we'll talk about more later, but why she did end up leaving comedy is because she was just already such so young and already considered to be an adult. Yeah. Well, I read something about her, too, even about her childhood. I mean, let's go way back, because I know she was born in France. And I'll even say the year. It was 1911. I remember oh reading this. Gosh, wow. You know, it was before World War One. And uh, but she moved when she was a baby to the Bronx in New York. Her father was some kind of a, was he a political prisoner or something that was going on with the whatever was going on in Europe. But uh, they came over here. But I guess there was a point when she was a very young girl. Her father must have been a very violent drunk. And he was beating up her mother. And she said, there's no way a man is going to have that much control over me. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got to, you know, because her mother had no place else to go. She had no one else to rely on. She had to deal with it. So I think that was the basis of why, why she became such a real powerhouse hard worker. I mean, she got in vaudeville. She didn't stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she just, you know, worked and worked and worked. And she supported the family. I mean, they left the father. He was gone. But it was her mother and her siblings. Right. But, um, yeah. She didn't stop. So, yeah, she had no, in other words, she had no childhood. Yeah. In her vaudeville days, too, she was kind of working uh, like two or three person shows where she was, you know, someone was the straight man and then she would come and like add a punchline to whatever they were doing. And it really wasn't until the late 30s or 40s that she branched off on her own and started doing what we know as stand-up now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, I feel like, the times, though, per se, because that you just didn't see these female performers being solo acts. You just didn't see it at that time. So even vaudeville, it was like, if you saw a female performer by herself, it was she was usually a stripper, you know? Yeah. Like, she was a dancer, a stripper, or maybe a singer, you know, but not a comedian. You just didn't see that. So, um yeah, you're absolutely right, Logan. Her first her first act was called she toured with Marty May and it was Marty May Annoyed by Gene Carroll was yes. the name of the <laughs> act, which I, I think is so funny and interesting that they had to have that annoyed by <laughs> Gene Carroll. Well he found her in that song and dance team because I uh, she would I think between the songs, she would stop the band and say, and talk about something that happened that oh. day. Nobody else was doing that stuff. She had mm-hmm. a natural sense of humor. She would say, wait a minute, before you start that song, let me tell you where I ate lunch today or something like that. And it right. would turn out to be very yeah. funny. And that's where this Marty May saw her doing that. And he said, okay, here's my meal ticket here. Um, but yeah, they were all comedy teams back then. You know, there were no standalone women stand-up comics. <laughs> they, they had, they, they, it wasn't even accepted, really. The audiences did not want to see that. Well, even once it started kind of becoming a thing, the female comics of the time, they were sort of like, they were frumpy or they had some kind of gimmick that made them just kind of goofy. And she played it so normal. She was elegantly dressed and she didn't put herself down, really. So it was a very different style than what was common. Ditsy, you know, like, I mean, I, George Burns and Gracie Allen, okay, Perfect. I mean, they were the top comedy, male, female comedy team at the time. And Gracie just played ditzy. That was her role. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you look at uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. You know, Lucy was, even though she was glamorous, you know, in her movie mm-hmm. career and everything else, but she had the flaming red hair and she just played, you know, uh, what do you want? Fren- frenetic or whatever. I don't even know what the word. She played, cr- <laughs> she was crazy. She was right. Lucy. And that yeah, was her she was whole shoving thing. herself into everything Ricky was doing. She wasn't the one yeah. with any sort of power in that relationship. Whereas Jean's character, I mean, it's not her character, it's her real self, but her stage presence is she's just all the power. You know, she stands there mm-hmm. unapologetically herself. And one of the things I did think was interesting is that although she does dress very elegantly, um, she said her, her 
beauty was a distraction. She noticed that. She she saw, you know, women in the audience felt threatened by her um, or commenting on her legs or something like this. So she would make adjustments. She said she would cover as much of her body as she could. She wore long dresses and long gloves and did as much as she could to kind of cover up. That way she wasn't that that sort of image of herself wasn't being a distraction to her actual material, which I found very yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're right about that. And they all judge her. And seriously, a woman walking on stage alone in the 1930s <laughs> to do stand-up comedy was not acceptable. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, they, she... they, they didn't care for this stuff. How? Who did she think she was? And, uh, you know, she, she was solo for a little while, but then she hooked up with another comedy team, her future husband, who I think was Buddy Howe. Yeah. So... Who really championed for her. Like, I mean... That's Once he saw a, how funny she was, he thought she should just do it herself. Yeah, but yeah. they did a lot of years, the two of them. Again, yeah. I mean, she mm-hmm. he was the straight man. And, you know, we all know the straight man. Every great comedy team. You know, George Burns was the straight man to Gracie Allen's comedy. Dean Martin was the straight man to Jerry Lewis comedy. Even the Smothers Brothers, you know. Uh, Dick Smothers was the straight man to Tommy Smothers. There's always a straight man. So mm-hmm. he was the guy who kind of like held it together. He was the one who had the common sense or the smart one, and she was playing off of him, joking around with him. And they were pretty successful. I mean, they were very successful, but then he got drafted. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. And we're we're talking about Buddy Howe. He got drafted in World War II, so he had to leave, and so she was back to be a solo act. And when he came back, he saw her. You know, she was a hit. And his attitude was, I'm just going to bring you down. I don't even belong. He was smart enough to know I shouldn't be in this act. You're great on your own. So he became her manager. And he, in his own right, he became a very successful manager. He became a pretty, um, he ended up working for a a talent agent out there and and represented a lot of people. International Creative Management, ICM. Anybody in the entertainment industry knows who that ICM, is. Yeah. They're ICM, they're huge. It would have been so easy for him to come back from the war and say, okay, let's do our act again. But mm-hmm. he was able to step back, get out of the spotlight and just say, you need to do this. I'll figure out a different way to be successful. Yeah, and he really kind of, as a manager, he did a great job because I think it was only a matter of just like a couple of years after World War II ended, she was headlining all the major clubs. And she was doing shows at Madison Square Garden. Yes, and uh, she even came out after, I think, one year, I think it was after 1948 or something, she said she could play anywhere she wants and she can name her price, and they'll give it to her. Just can't emphasize how big she was as an entertainer. The late 40s, going Part into Part of that the was uh, television, too, because she was huge on Ed Sullivan's show. She had an exclusive contract, and she was getting $10,000 in appearance to go on his Sunday night shows. Yeah, let's put this into perspective, because I, I can't help myself. You know me, I've written a couple books <laughs> on the Beatles, and I do kind of talk about music and comedy Oh, the do same they have time. a connection to Ed Sullivan? Oh, let me tell you the <laughs> connection. Jean Carroll, she signed a contract with Ed Sullivan. This is in the 1950s, okay, early 1950s. Every time she appeared on the show, she got $10,000. I mean, that was big money back in the 50s. Okay, put it in perspective. When the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan in the 1964, you know, when they blew up, they got $10,000 for three appearances. 
He only gave him 3,500 or something for each appearance. Did they have to split it too? <laughs> yeah, they had to split it. Oh, that that's was why you gotta be a solo thing. act. Yes. So here, the, you know, they, got, they did three shows, they got 10,000 bucks. Jean Carroll would do one show, they got ten, she got $10,000. And she so, did about 20 shows. Yes. Yeah. But uh, she kind of got upset with Ed Sullivan. I, I think there was a problem there because she, uh, in, in an interview I read with her, uh, Ed would do things. He felt he had her under control because he was giving her that much money. She had an exclusive contract, so he felt he had really too much control. So she's, And this was a live television show on Sunday nights. They go out live. And uh, right before she would go on stage, he'd come over, maybe whisper in her ear, say, can you cut four minutes out of your act? And she's like, what? You know, or he'd say, you know, can you cut three minutes tonight? Just before she's going on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that as a comedian or as any entertainer. Yeah. You got your act, you're ready to go. And as a national audience, millions of people across the country are watching. And Ed Sullivan says, you know, cut four minutes out of your act. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine how nerve-wracking that would be because you don't want to embarrass yourself and... Even though every time you're on there, it's a lot of viewers, it could be their first time seeing you, even if it's your 10th time on the show. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there was a little bit of animosity there. And when that contract ended, even though she continued to, to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show, I've seen clips of her you know, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to being a, the only female stand-up comedian, they compared her a lot to Milton Berle and Bob Hope. I think she yeah. got tired of that. I mean, She's we should definitely talk about her style a little bit because it's so conversational and casual. At first, I guess she was criticized as seeming too intimate. It was almost like off-putting to audiences Which early again, on. I think was probably more of the fact that she was a woman. <laughs> I, probably, I think yeah. that really had a lot to do with it because, I mean, we, we saw that sort of style happen with other comedians of that time, but it was her that they said that sort of natural conversation was just not not acceptable and... I think there was just a lot of people looking for ways to put her down because well, she was definitely. a woman. And she was um, kind of getting criticized from men and women. Oh, yeah, all yeah. over. She really had to defend her right to be on stage, and she did it. And, you know, and it's really interesting, too, because she she didn't... A lot of the comedians that we sort of review... Um, like I know We did an episode on um, Red Fox recently where he was like, I'm going to be a star no matter what, and it doesn't matter what comes in my way. She's like, I don't care if I'm a star. <laughs> you know, like yeah. she really was like, mm-hmm. had no no cares whatsoever of, of, you know, fame and fortune, but she just did it because she enjoyed it and she was good at it. And so she, you know, she's like, I'm not, I'm just Jean Carroll. I'm not playing a character. You know, a lot, she got accused of stealing jokes a lot, stealing material. And she's like, nope, I write all my own material, you know. And um, in fact, they say like a lot of people actually probably stole their acts from her. Going back also to like her material and what she was doing, think back to those times in the 1930s when she was doing this. That was It was vaudeville. And these were all men, stand-up comedians, and they were all stealing each other's jokes. Mm-hmm. They all had the same act because there was no television, so, you know, you could see you a comic. Get caught. In, you wouldn't get <laughs> right. caught. You could see a comic in Cleveland one night and Detroit the same night doing the same act. You know, they, did, they, they all had the same jokes and what they did. So when she came along, you know, she was doing, she wrote her own material, which was, you know, there used to be gag writers. Everybody hired a writer and gags. They got to buy jokes, buy jokes. She started write, writing her own material, but was based on her life as a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay, things that interest her. I mean, it, at that time, too, it was like family. It was like shopping. It's like, you know, the, the, the comics back then were making jokes of, you know, take my wife, please. Okay, well, she talked about her husband. And, you know, um, they couldn't steal that, <laughs> you know. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it really just set her apart. And, you know, it was a mm-hmm. whole different ball game. Then after she had a kid, there were people at the shows, like women at the shows were asking like, oh, well, what's your baby doing if you're on stage? Yeah, who's taking Which care of your kid? sadly is yeah. still a thing as a female uh-huh. comedian with a child. You get that question of like, well, who's watching your kid? Well, her father is, so... <laughs> Sorry, hey, cut, that, hey. cut that out, Sarah. <laughs> I thought this was a family show. <laughs> cut that out, Sarah. Um, wow. But no, I mean, it, it... We dug into something personal here <laughs> yeah. now. Kelly, who's watching your child? Now? I know. It's so... But it really... You, we do. We still get that. And even, even the comments about dress. Like, I remember just in a, a couple seasons ago on Last Comic Standing, there was... Um, Aida Rajik, as they they said, the critique was, well, you're too pretty to be on stage. It was like, how is that a critique? You know, mm-hmm. so it's still, we still, unfortunately, see these sexism things going on today, which is part of the reason why I'm so excited we are doing this episode. I agree all the way with yeah. what you're yeah. saying. I mean, I honestly do. I mean, my gosh. I mean, do you think we've evolved since the 1930s uh, to accept, you know, everyone's personal like what they do and they go on stage and they talk about it and so you know you're a mother and you're on stage you're only performing an hour every night hey you got 23 hours a day with your kid but what i will say is what i really like about stand-up is getting different people's perspectives on the world and you can't have that if it's all men and that's kind of what vaudeville was you had a lot of take my wife jokes but it's interesting to hear someone from you know the 40s and 50s having that perspective of here's why my husband's a dope and you know and again the thing is too that she came out as herself she didn't try to goofy herself up, you know, look funny like Phyllis Diller with the fright wig and the big earrings and, you know, Lucy with the bleak teeth blacked out and all that kind of stuff like they did all that. I mean, she came out like she was going to a, an evening affair, you know, a black tie affair with her with her formal gloves up to her elbows and her, you know, her elegant dress and her hair and everything. And, you know, they weren't used to seeing someone like that on stage and then doing comedy. And, you know, talk about something that is still relevant, her material, we kind of touched upon this before, that album, Girl in a Hot Steam Bath, a lot of those jokes, I mean, yes, there are some timely things, like it starts out with a joke about her wanting to buy a mink coat, but it's like, if you replace mink coat with, you know, an iPhone or whatever, you know, whatever, it still really plays well. And a lot of her material is like that. It's, you know, minor tweaks to update it, but for the most part, it's still very much relevant. The jokes are all certainly, like, still there. There's yes. nothing that's being, like, missed in translation. And she's very New York. When I listen to her, I mean, I think she grew up in the Bronx, but she has that real New York accent. Mm-hmm. And when she talks about people, I mean, she, you know, again, with that thing about the bit about buying the mink coat, you know she's dealing with, you know, a guy from the mob or somebody. <laughs> Somebody's connected. Okay, mm-hmm. don't you worry about what, And when she goes <laughs> in to buy a dress, oh, don't worry, honey, that's your size. She imitates those people with the real New York kind of Bronx, kind of the, the kind of people you would meet in that situation. I love that character, too. That was a fun character to just oh, listen yeah. to her do. Oh, yeah. It still holds up. I mean, I'll tell you guys, I lived in Manhattan in New York City for a lot of years, and I went down a couple of places to buy a few things, and you met some of those people, <laughs> and you, you were almost afraid not to buy it. Okay, I know, I'll take it. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I bought a suit one time from a guy that must have fallen off a truck or something down in Bullberry <laughs> Street. I'm like, yeah, I guess I'll take it. Doesn't fit, but doesn't matter. I guess I'll take it. Just buying suits <laughs> off Red Fox. Yeah, exactly. That's what it was. <laughs> I was really impressed by the album. I mean, even that yeah. first bit about the mink coat, that's a 12-minute story. And that's a big way to open your album is one 12-minute story, and it kills. It's so funny. And the thing is, too, about her writing um, – it is a lot of jokes in there. I mean, she's doing monologues. She's telling you a story, but there's 
there are jokes within the story. I don't know if non-comedians would understand that. I mean, there's some comics who are great storytellers and you laugh because there's so many colors and descriptions and things like that in the story. And then there are other comics who are more joke tellers. She seems to combine that. Yeah, I mean, if you took just the one-liners, you would have, like... Yes. You'd still have nine minutes of one-liners in there. There's three minutes of actual story. Yeah. Just peppered with jokes everywhere. And, you know, her stage experience, again, you have to learn this stuff on stage. You can't sit in your living room and practice to be a comedian. <laughs> you have to be out in front of an audience and, and, you know, hear what works. So when you watch her, if a joke is working and the audience is laughing, she'll, I can't explain it. She goes, and as, as I was saying, and all of a sudden she'll stop and the audience is laughing. And then she'll say another joke, but you know what I mean? And then she'll stop and they'll keep laughing. Yeah, it's like she, she adjusts her pacing a lot. Yes, it's yes. amazing. Yeah, you really watch her do that. And... um you know, it's experience. I mean, years and years of experience. She's good. And you can tell so much of this is just her living her life, finding finding the funny in, in her own life experience because she laughs at her own jokes. You really, you can tell she's just up there on stage just enjoying herself. I mean, it, it's a shame that there's no video of this album out anywhere because I'm sure it was just, I mean, there are clips of her that you can watch that are just so much fun, but I really would have loved to see like, this whole album live because she just seems like she's having so much fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think now that you, Kelly, you just reminded me, I think I read somewhere on her once that she stopped performing, you know, again, to be a, a, a wife and a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think she stopped laughing at her own material. I think she said that in an interview. She finally yeah, was she's, done. Yeah. She would have a hard time going through with shows when she was dealing with things at home like her daughter had medical problems and so did her mom and sister and some nights she'd have to go perform and do her act but she just wasn't happy while doing it yeah and that can be really tough if you watch her when she's really you know cooking really great like on the ed sullivan show these clips are on youtube you know or some of these others when she's she's laughing at herself she is having a good time you can tell and uh i assume then there were times that it was just too hard for her to go on stage and then she had some health problems, too. I heard she, you know, she had a heart attack or something. She had yeah. a, a heart mm-hmm. condition. She had a heart condition her entire life. But in 1969, she had a heart attack. And that was that was it. That was her her excuse to... I, I don't really want to say excuse because it sounds like she, she was looking for one. But she, she kind of was. And, and that was it. That was, her, that was her out of show business. She said, I had a heart attack and, and I'm, now I'm done. Yeah. Yeah, and that was it. And she lived a long life after that. I mean, she retired, what, 1968, 1969, and uh, she didn't pass away until 2010. And -hmm. it was just a few days before she turned 99 years old. And she never went back to comedy, which I thought was interesting, because she had offers every now and then. Yeah. Uh, Lily Tomlin, I think, offered to have her guest host The Tonight Show with her, and she turned it down. And her own husband, they said that that was still, her retirement was, was like the biggest fight in their relationship. They, he would still bring it up of like, hey, you gotta get back out there, you know? Because he just really believed in her and, and enjoyed her talent. But she was done. Which mm-hmm. I respect that too. I, I really do. And she mm-hmm. said she could have she could have been the next I Love Lucy. Oh, is, yeah. She, she had two sitcoms. Well, no, she only had one. Sorry, she had one. It was 1953. It was called Take It From Me. But then kind of like also was called AKA the Gene Carroll show. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a time where you could just switch the titles yeah. whenever and no one <laughs> noticed. Um, but yeah, it was, it was her own sitcom show, but she only did it for what, 12 episodes or 12 something? 12 episodes, like that? Yeah. 1953 into January 1954. Mm. And uh, it, it, she was primed to be the next Lucille Ball or the one, I don't know what year Lucy was on. I think Lucy was on at that time too. I think it was around the same time, yeah. So. Okay, yeah. 
But she, her show was different that she would open up, and I read this too, and like you can find television history. I love finding that kind of stuff. She would open up each show with a monologue. Yeah, she would break the fourth wall. Yeah, she would break the fourth wall. And then yeah, I think even after some of the scenes, she would turn to the camera yeah. and do a bit of a monologue of what people saw. But from what I understand, they said that because she was so into, they didn't know if it was Brooklyn or the Bronx where this sitcom was supposed to take place. They thought people in the Midwest couldn't relate to it. They were having a hard time. Mm. But also, I read, this is interesting, and I don't know the actor's name, but whoever they cast to play her husband on the show, I think she did not like this guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I heard uh, that yeah. too. Yeah, she said he was miscast. They should have got someone else. I don't think she liked him. I don't think they got along. I don't know that for sure, but that's why she pulled the plug. She said she wasn't happy. Yeah. She wasn't. It was her show, and she wanted him out and someone else in it. And the network says, "No, you can't do that. That's who we cast. He's going to be your husband. You don't call the shots." She goes, "Yeah, you think so? It's my show. <laughs> Guess yeah. what? We just pulled the plug on it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a shame you can't really find that stuff. But it's yeah. really fortunate that there is at least one album of hers, and it's fantastic. And you found it, and Logan. All and we you thank have you for to that. do is change your computer to say you're from <laughs> India. Yeah. And you can have it too. <laughs> or you can buy it, get a record player, get a record listen player. to it. It's definitely right. worth the investment. Well, while you guys are changing your computer formats to <laughs> India, I'm going to say uh, this has been a lot of fun talking with both of you, Kelly and Logan. I had a blast because, you know, I'm telling you, Gene Carroll is really a legend of comedy, so special. And I'm so glad we had this opportunity to talk about her because, like we said in the beginning, I don't know how many people really know of her. Yeah, I, all the I had a lot of she fun. Yeah, I'm glad we got the name out there so people can actually look into her because she gets overlooked a lot and she shouldn't because she's one of the first and one of the best. And if anyone out there listening to this finds anything that we haven't talked about today, leave it in the comments of the podcast so we can discover it too because I would love to see more uh, Gene Carroll material. Absolutely. Um, you know, so <laughs> if any other comedian detectives out there know where we can find this stuff, please put it in the comments of the podcast and share with everybody. Also, if you do any babysitting when Kelly's on stage. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I had to throw it in. All right, on that note, I'm going to sign off. I'm going to thank you guys for another fun time. I enjoyed this a lot. So, Kelly Thulis, it was good talking with you. Oh, so good to talk with you, too. We'll talk with you again soon. And Logan Rashaw. Thanks again, Dave. It's always a blast. All right, man. I had a good time. All right, that's it. I'm Dave Schwentz, and you're listening to What's So Funny. And until next time, keep laughing. What's So Funny is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya, producer Sarah Wilgroup, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. 
You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.